what's interesting about socials is you never know who's watching. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Just because they don't like or comment or whatever, just because they don't interact doesn't mean they're watching. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've had people message me after I do a post and they've never interacted with the post or previous posts. And they'll send me a message and say, hey, I've been watching what you're doing. How can Mm -hmm. I get involved? Or are you looking in this area? Or I know this person who I can connect you with. And so finding an operator is really doing social posts, leaning on your network, Mm -hmm. local chamber of commerce is kind of a little, not hidden secret, but it's like they really have their finger on the pole. Welcome to the Mind Your Own Business podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Sterick. This show is where we talk about all kinds of different stuff in business, but mainly we talk about how to mind your own business and stay in your own lane, and we interview only distinguished guests in order to find out their secrets. Let's like recap, you know, let's recap what we do. Like, obviously you're from Reno. What do you do in Reno? I live in Reno, grew up in the East Coast in Pennsylvania, moved out West not long after my undergraduate work to do a master's. And then at that time in my life, like, you know, I was 23 or whatever. The most important things to me were skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, those kinds of things. And I ended up doing a PhD at University of Reno because it was a cool location near Tahoe and a field I enjoyed. Yeah, just, I mean, and we were supposed to live here for a few years and then move back up to Seattle where my wife's from. But here we are 12 years, 13 years later. And my wife's a veterinarian. She's a practice owner. And so that's her main gig. We also do a lot of real estate investments, but all in the Midwest. And then I still work for an environmental consulting company in my current field, which is very, I really don't have a lot to complain about, I guess, other than, you know, I'm a goal setter. And at some point you're like, I feel like I could achieve more and want to achieve more. And so I'd say after we bought the hospital with another partner. I say we, I mean, really, this is mostly my wife. I'm emotional support and some financial guidance at times, but you know, she's driving that and she does an incredible job. Hardest working woman I know. And I will just say this about veterinarians in general. They're the hardest working group of professionals that I know. And it's just incredible. We're doing a lot of but stuff right now. That, like, you know, we started to realize power of ownership, investments. We both, you know, science people really didn't have any training in like finance or, you know, how money works, for example. And so started to really educate myself on that and made use of some home equity we had in Reno because we were able to buy at a really good time. And, you know, obviously the last few years, prices have just been crazy. We were able to use that and leverage that into, we partner with my brother-in-law and we've got, you know, a couple million worth of real estate investments now. And that's been really solid. And so lately, it's been harder to find real estate investments, I feel like, that are at least fitting our buy box. And then we did just close on eight units though. So that was good. That's but good. where are the eight units? Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I love that city. Dude, I went out there to visit some of our other properties in January and I was like pretty blown away because I'd never been there. I identified it as a market that like seemingly was growing, had good proximity to some other larger cities, Chicago, Minneapolis, etc. I like the state of Iowa from, you know, my background. I have a lot of climate understanding in my life and from a natural disaster perspective, I was better. You know, they're going to avoid most of the hurricanes that are 
we're going to see a lot of. So I liked it from that perspective too. And I said, well, I need to get out there. And I spent a day with my property manager, drove all over the city, got to know it. And I was just like, this place is booming. It's clean. It's got like some good food. It's got, there's a little section of town called Croatian inspired. My arch nemesis, you know, my background, my family heritage is half Serbian. And so oh, okay. the Serbian yeah. and then the Croats, you know, they were always fighting with each other. Totally. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, just to build off what you said, I was blown away by that city just in like, not what I expected from a Midwestern city. It was booming, uh, very clean. I had a great meal downtown, like a bougie bar, brewery type place. And I was just like, ah, oh, I didn't see this coming. I was happy and we're continuing to try to invest in that area. So let's talk about that, right? So Cedar Rapids, Iowa, you guys just bought an eight unit there. The three most important things in real estate are location, location, mm -hmm. right? Tell me why that unit, that eight unit was a great location and why you decided that you wanted to pull the trigger on it. Good questions. I kind of talked a little bit about Cedar Rapids in general, just from like not explosive population growth. I mean, it's not like what some of the other pandemic areas saw, but it was steady. And sometimes I appreciate steady and slow over like trying to get on the bandwagon of everything else. So I like that too. It's not like I'm not competing against like thousands of other investors. I feel like when I'm making choices, which also helps me to not get into bidding wars and be able to kind of dictate stuff on my own terms. These particular buildings are two fourplexes, like they share a parking lot. They're in actually Marion, Iowa, which is kind of like the other half of Cedar Rapids, basically. Very nice suburb. Properties were mid 90s built. So I like to age knowing that, okay, I don't have like, you know, there's stuff, don't get me wrong, but like, you know. And then the other part is their area, this suburb of Marion, like you go a quarter mile north of where these fourplexes are. Well, first of all, in their neighborhood, there's lots of really nice single family homes that are, you know, in the three, four hundred thousand dollar range. And I bought these, we got eight units where we paid four seventy two for them. That's great. Yeah, it was a good deal. And they rent their peak rent if we get them all up to eight hundred a unit will, you know, greatly beat the one percent rule. Yeah, you're um, and one and a half percent per door. Yeah, it's really nice. They are you can see the high school from them. It's a nice high school. Like it's not, you know, I mean it's a good one. It's a safe area. And so I just, you know, all those factors came together. They were brought to me fully off market from my property manager who's brought me other deals as well because he knows we'll close if they're good. And so all of those things, you know, we had the property manager in place. We had a good location. They were cash flowing. They were going to continue to cash flow and had some upside on them too. And then just kind of banking on some appreciation in the area. Really nice. Yeah. Awesome. What other markets are you guys invested in? I have properties in St. Joe, Missouri, and I have property in Joplin, Missouri as well. And Quite a few I, uh, in Joplin. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you, if you know them, but I'll, I'll connect you with some of those friends. So that way you guys can work together. That'd be great. Yeah. Also good markets, different markets. Joplin's seen a lot of growth and is going to continue to see a lot of growth. I think they just built an or they're building a new dental school in Joplin. So that's kind of a nice little perk. And then, you know, it's only, uh, it's like an hour and a half from uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. So it's kind of getting that Walmart hub sort of expansion area. Okay. We're only in one home there. And then St. Joe, we've got 10 houses, which is more of just a cash flow play market. All Burrs own 10 homes, but I don't think I have any actual money sitting in Joplin, if you know what I mean. Then so they're all cash flow as well. Or those, sorry, in St. Joe. That's okay. So for those who are who are listening and don't know what a burr is, can you explain what that is? Yeah, you know, basic principle is I buy completely destroyed home or mostly destroyed home, but a property at discount. Typically try to pay cash for that and 
then I bring the value up enough by renovating it so that I can then put a loan on it, take a cash out refinance that covers all the money I already invested. I essentially get my money back, then I rent the property and it ideally it's cash flowing. And I've then I take all the money I used and I go to the next one. So okay. burr is burr buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Awesome. And keep on rolling that money into the future deals. That's the idea. Although it's been challenging because the interest rates and the loan market has really made it tough the last six months. There's still deals to be had, but they're not quite as juicy as they were, you know, when you were getting debt at 4%. You know, now my mortgage payments are, well, my interest payment on that, you know, $100,000, $200,000 house is double what it was, you know, a year ago. And so we've slowed down on that a little bit. And we're kind of waiting for a couple other, we have some equity locked into a couple other investment properties that we'll get back and we'll probably get going again. But it's been harder. We just turned one down in St. Joe because we called the bankers and, you know, they're getting really tight. At least our loan partners are getting a lot tighter with what they want to loan from a total amount and also just the interest rates. Like, so one lender who used to basically just loan us 80% of the ARV after repair value, he's like, well, I'm only going to, he's now he's only loaning on debt coverage service. So DCSR, meaning that previous house, say I had $100,000 of value in it, I could get $80,000 out depending on what it rents for. I might only get 60,000 back out or 55, depending on how he kind of, he has a little formula that I don't know that I fully understood, but anyways, it just was coming in where we were getting now, getting about 60% of the ARV. Wow. So that probably makes it really tough right now. And because like, they're not only changing it, obviously the interest rates have gone up a lot, but now that the guidelines on how they're underwriting and lending have also changed, you're getting kind of hit from like both Mm -hmm. sides on it. So then what's the next move? Like, what do you pivot to? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. And there's an argument to be made that now's just keep buying, just handle, you know, leave some money in your deal. Or, you know, if you find a deal that breaks even, but you still have to leave 20K in it, you should just keep doing that. And so we've thought about that and we probably will do some of those deals here in the future. Another thing we've started to focus on is like I mentioned, we bought an eight unit, which really trying to move into larger deals, you know. Like what kind of larger deals? Ideally, you know, something in the 20 to 50 type range. Uh, units wise, looking at stuff that's, you know, more in the one, $2 million, $3 million purchase price and allows us the same thing where we can put a bunch of money in it, you know, get it updated, get it up to market rent, get the management in place and bring value back to it. And we still see some of the same issues with that. Like ideally you can again, refinance that property after you've, you know, got it stabilized and then you can get all your equity back out. Most of the underwriting I've done recently, you know, you're looking maybe you get 80% of your equity back out. Not terrible, but you know, you might have to just suffer through some like slightly lower percent returns until we start seeing interest rates come back down into the I don't believe they'll be zero percent again, but I do think we'll start getting down into the fours and just fours for refinances, fives for refinances. It's gonna stabilize, I think, at that. So so that's what we've been doing. The other thing I think where you and I maybe cross paths a lot too is I've been pretty active active in searching for another business. Awesome. And so that's hey, been taking about that, man. Tell, tell me all about it. I'm in that <laughs> world right now, big time. Well, I mean, I've been in that world for a long time, but now I'm like 
actively campaigning and looking yeah. for stuff to purchase. Yeah, yeah. Similarly, in the same boat, we definitely have identified that like now can be a very good time to buy a business. A couple of reasons that we've pinpointed. One, a lot of these businesses didn't do a great job of pricing in the inflation that came through. And so, you know, they're running on slightly lower margins, but there's room to enable them Two, as, as many of us in this world know, like, you know, the boomer generation who owns tons of businesses are starting to, you know, put forth their exit plans. So stuff's coming on market. And then three, I recently read that, you know, exit multiples on EBITDA are almost at their lowest that they have been in some time right now. So for a buyer like you or me, it could prove to be a solid place, solid time to get something. And then again, as debt becomes cheaper and those EBITDA multiples start to bring come higher up, you know, you have a good chance at a good exit value. So we've had a couple of deals. One, it was a really hard pill to swallow. It was going to be good, but we had to pull out. It just didn't work out. Got it. What and kind I can, of was it? So this was interesting. And I'll just, you know, preface this with like my search because we're tied heavily to the Reno area. You know, we have two little girls. They're five and almost eight, you know, we're engaged. And so I haven't, we've been largely focused in this geography. And with my wife running a veterinary hospital, you know, there's only so much time one can travel about. So we're trying to keep our regions nearby. So this business was here in Reno. It was actually a pallet manufacturing company, which was really, really intriguing. You know, if you think about it, it's super simple, right? It's like you buy lumber and you put it together like Legos. And that was highly attractive. Any different ways to make money in a pallet business, like things that I'm sure you've thought about but yeah looking from the outside in have no idea that there's easily five different ways to make business or to make money in that business right away and mm -hmm. on top of that it's very simple labor simple it, labor yep doesn't take a rocket scientist to build a pallet nope absolutely not so this particular business we liked it for a couple of reasons it one i mean positioned in reno that was a big checkbox two had about the ebitda value we were looking for you know we're mostly shopping we don't you know to me any Anything below 500 is just not quite, you know, the juice quite isn't worth it for me to part what I'm currently doing. You know, after you factor in debt and stuff, you're like, well, I'm not actually like doing any better than it was. So, you know, you got to be at a, this was sitting their last three years. I think we're running 700 and then they had a 1.2 and then they had a 2 million and then their T12 was back down to about 1.6. Gross rev? No, in EBITDA net. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere in an average about 1.2 ish. Yeah, I think we valued it at 1.4. We took, I think what we did is did our value was going to be, it was on 1.4 million of EBITDA. And I think we were looking at about a 3.8 multiple on it. Wow, that's really strong. Well, so the other reason is it also was coming with, so that was only the business part. Okay. It also came with 13 acres of land, of which they operate on. So then we had to consider an offer on land, which is probably going to be, you know, so our total offer package was going to be about, was in this, you know, we were looking at about 7 million on the total package. Okay. So here's where we had a full sit down and it was getting really exciting. We started to learn, you know, one of the things they said is like, well, one, we were a little concerned about the readjusted declining EBITDA in the T12. It's like, well, what's going on? So if you look at lumber prices over the last, you know, five years, really, you know, it's pretty steady all the way until the pandemic, right? And then we all know what happened in the pandemic. Lumber pricing went through the roof. 
yeah. you know, by five times almost. Yeah. So when you look at the revenue of the company, they hold tons of inventory and lumber. So he bought a lot of inventory at a pretty low price pre-pandemic, just because that's their standard operating procedure. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great idea. So he had a bunch of lumber in there. And the lumber pricing comes up. He's able to pull the pallet pricing up like, you know, quite a bit and was turning really big profits. So now there were, if you look at the lumber market, there were two spikes, one in about 20, late 2020, came back down. And then again, kind of like summer to fall 2021. So what he was able to do is be smart enough, great businessman to have a bunch of lumber on hand. And when he saw that price go back down, that lag between those two stockpiled again, right? So he's buying cheap, selling high. So we got concerned because we're now at base lumber prices again. So if you're just steady Eddie on the base lumber prices, like where does that leave you from, you know, a net profitability standpoint? So we got, we requested, you know, like all the financial history they had, you know, I think we got back to like 2013. Okay. And lo and behold, even though, you know, they basically sent us raw numbers and I'm sure there was still profit. I know there was profitability in it. wasn't anywhere near like, you know, 2 million or one and a half. We got pretty scared about our prospect of being able to continue that high pricing, even as lumber prices have returned to normal. And I think it was something we couldn't get over. We exited at that point. I mean, that's kind of like, it's not really rejection, but it's really like deflation, right? Because like, I know for me, yeah. if I'm in a deal and I'm working and I'm investing all this time, and then all of a sudden you find this big red flag, you're like, I found this big red flag. And this sucks because this looked really, really promising. So like, how do you, I guess, how do you lift yourself back up? Like, how do you bounce back from that? I'm glad you asked that. Like, it's emotional. You're kind of like heartbroken on one hand. Like, you know, this to me, I was like, this is so good. Like, and we were both very excited, my other partner and I. And, you know, all I could do is move back on, get back on the train, man. I mean, you know, there's only if I lay around and just start to tell myself, oh, I'll never find a good deal. Like, and you just get down dumps. It's not, you know, it's not going to help anyone and it's not going to help you. So, you know, me, I kind of mentioned my previous life, not my previous life, but like outdoor recreation enthusiast, you know, ski mountaineering. I like to do really big, long trail runs that gain a lot of elevation and it's mental, you know, it's just like when I'm running up to the top of a mountain, like it's just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's kind of how I apply to this, to the search. It's like, you know, the first one can't always be the winner and you just got to keep on moving. So that's my mentality about it. And in a way it's like kind of a numbers game, you know, like you look through a thousand businesses, hopefully one of them, right. Works out in a good way or two or three or whatever. But, you know, I would also say our investment thesis is, I don't know, maybe conservative is not the right word, but like skeptical. We're always aware of the risks that present, especially when buying a business, because as you know, like oftentimes this one did come with real estate, but a lot of them don't. You know, you talk to the bank then and, you know, they're like, okay, so we're putting all of our marbles in you guys. Like there's no asset to like grab if this goes south. There's no asset to sell. There's no like natural appreciation. Like that's why people love real estate is like, because in real estate, if you just like hold your breath long enough and like it'll work out. But like in business, not really the case. Like you can head south. And so you have to just be careful, I think, especially when, you know, if you're going to take on like this, you know, we're talking that deal could have been six, $7 million in debt. So not a like. So cautious. talk about that a little bit. So it was going to have real estate and then yeah. you're going to have a business component to it as well. How would you have taken that deal down and what would have that looked like as far as the monetary structure of it? Yeah. So we were looking, we had term sheets.
sheets from banks. We were looking at funding the max SBA part of it. Typically, on you know, an SBA loan will be up to $5 million. And what our plan was, was to try to get as much of the purchase price allocated to real estate as possible. If you can get over 50% of your purchase price allocated to an asset, such as real estate, then you can pull your loan into like a 25-year term. From a cash flow perspective, that's killer. Huge. Now, yeah. And plus, interest rates on a real estate-backed loan through the bank we were working with, we're looking at the time of about six and a half-ish wow. versus if you're on like a strict SBA 7A loan without real estate, you're looking at right now 10 and a half percent. So like big, big differences in that kind of money. And so what we would have done is funded, we were looking at about, I think we had, we were probably going to bring 15 to 20 percent equity to the deal. It was looking like what the banks were wanting, say 17 or 18 percent of cash. And then we had SBA covering another 4 million. And then we were looking at a commercial topper to that loan. So that would have been, yeah, maybe another one and a half million on the commercial topper. And so the commercial topper would have been trickier. Commercial loans have a lot more covenants associated with, and they also, you know, might be tougher terms to deal with. So we wanted to put as little as possible on the commercial topper as much as possible into the SBA, but also not like bring so much equity to the deal that it was like not worth it. That's kind of how we were initially going to do it. But yeah, like I said, we pulled out before the finish. Yeah. So were you going to also bring in some investors for the difference or were you going to have that commercial topper basically handle the close? No. So we would have brought that 17% equity as part of the whole deal. So that's between we have our team. I have two team members that are a mix of active, but also capital partners in a much more liquid position and a much, you know, they've had some successful exits of businesses recently. And so they're kind of looking for opportunities like this. And then, so we would have brought that cash. I'd be bringing cash too, but, and there is the opportunity, like we could have done how you might structure like a syndication. I mean, I think this deal on paper was looking so good that like, I don't think it would have been challenging to raise, you know, money from say a pool of LP investors. But in this case, we were hoping to keep it to the three of us. That's awesome. I know you pulled out because you found some red flags that you didn't like, but is there now, this was obviously a while ago too. How long ago was this that you guys kind of dropped this? April. Is there any reason why you wouldn't go back now and ask for updated financials to see what's going on? And maybe you can do a retrade. It's not a bad idea. I mean, I, we kind of, it'd be worth it. I think, I mean, one, I really want to know if they closed the deal from the brokers we were working with, you know, Apparently they were kind of meeting with three to four buyers and I don't know what the other buyers were, but when I called them and just said, you know, I don't think this is the deal for us. They didn't seem to lose too much sleep over that. Okay. So I'm kind of guessing they're in contract, but it would be worth That's a good idea. I should probably just reach out and be like, Hey, I'm just kind of curious, like where are things standing? I also wanted to see if they had anything else on the pipeline that would be suitable for us as well. But yeah, it was a very, very attractive deal at first. And I mean, it, for all I know, it was going to be, you know, it could have been a brilliant plan the whole time, but I will just say like staring down that kind of debt and with some not clear ability to maintain profitability like because we already seen you know the the percent profitability the percent margin was already shrinking in the t12 and i think that's what threw us it was like wait we need to kind of rethink this process and we got deeper into the profitability we got deeper into the cogs and it, it really came down to like it's kind of a commodity driven business you know it's tied to lumber pricing if you can buy low and sell high you're going to kill it but if you're kind of buying you know average and selling average you know, you're going to be at a much lower EBITDA that would not cover the debt we were having to take on for it. So, hey guys, just wanted to take a second here and thank you for listening to the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It means the world to me. It means so much to me that you guys are listening. I don't
don't make any money off of this stuff. I do it for free. I do it out of the goodness of my heart. I want to help people and I want to share all this cool information with you guys and everybody else in the world. So if you could think of somebody that you would share this to, so if they got some value out of it, I would really appreciate it. Share it on your socials. Click that little button for sharing and share it to your story. Thanks a lot. And the other thing too is like, I don't know what you're saying, but I just read an article the other day that private equity, non-individual investors, private equity corporations are starting to move their buy boxes into these lower tier EBITDAs as well. More private equity firms are coming into the 500, the 750 to $2 million EBITDA range, whereas previously they're usually operating in the you know greater than 3 million EBITDA range. I don't have a clear understanding why, but I I think we're starting to see some heightened competition for what I would call search funders or individual investors. Yeah, I find that interesting because typically they're going to be purchasing things above that $2 million mm-hmm. range. And mm-hmm. I think that you're right, there is some competition coming into the market. I also think that some of these PE firms and family offices have kind of been shown how much we can increase EBITDA, not easily, but how quickly we can increase EBITDA and then mm-hmm. you know, double mm-hmm. the exit multiple. And so- yeah. I think that institutions are trying, yeah. yeah, they're trying their hand, you know, they're trying their luck at these things yeah. because they've brought on other mm-hmm. people to put into their organization who are going to be running that smaller division. Yeah. This article pointed out that one of the things they think may be happening is a lot of these private equity firms may have gotten on to a larger platform style business like an HVAC company with the expectation of growing the EBITDA organically, but maybe having a difficult time doing that and thus not hitting their investment target from their original thesis. So now they're resorting to gobbling up smaller ones to you know, rapidly kind of grow so that they can hit their timeline of investment. I don't know what the answer is or how real it is, to be honest. Like it's different in every arena, but I think I'm seeing that a little bit. So where are you into right now? Buying businesses, right? We currently have our general contracting company, you know, here in mm-hmm. South California. We also own a specialty tax company that helps businesses get different types of tax credits from the government. There are two tax credits that we specialize in, one being, it's called the Employee Retention Credit. Mm -hmm. That one is a a COVID era program that was put into place alongside the PPP program. That's for businesses that had trouble during COVID. It's basically a COVID stimulus package for businesses that retained employees. So we've got that one. And then the Mm -hmm. other very large and long-term tax credit that we're working with is the Research and Development Credit. So that's Mm -hmm. any kind of business that's either improving a product or improving a process or Mm -hmm testing new methods. Basically, the purpose of the program, which was put into place in the Reagan administration, it's been around for a very long time. The purpose of the program is to ultimately grow the economy. Mm -hmm. When they grow the economy, they grow their revenue, they grow their tax revenue, which means we pay more taxes. Mm -hmm. What the government is doing is they give businesses almost a dollar for dollar tax credit, and it's a refundable tax credit. If a business is trying new stuff, they don't have to succeed. But if they're trying new stuff, the government literally sends them a check for trying mm-hmm. that up. Hmm. If already paid up all their income taxes and their payroll taxes, if they're paid up on that, they literally get a re- like a check from the treasury. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a market restriction to that? I mean, like there's clearly, you know, the spectrum of trying new things could be like broadly interpreted. And, you know, one could be like a high level R&D exercise on how to abate, you know, carbon in the atmosphere versus, you know, oh, my arborist company is trying out, you know, a different method for falling trees. So like, how do you interpret that? Yes. Yeah, So 
so the tax code is pretty clear on it. And, you know, there's certain boxes that we have to check in, in order to meet that criteria. But mm -hmm. any R&D, quote unquote, exercise can be hmm. qualified expenses, right? And it's all based on the expenses. So money that a business spends, it doesn't, yeah. it's not tied to the amount of employees you have. You can also hmm. use expenses from third party vendors from subcontract mm -hmm. well. So for example, like the high level, you know, reducing carbon in the atmosphere, right? Those, there's pretty clear, like, hey, we're testing these new methods or we're testing this sure. new way of doing that. And mm -hmm. those expenses, direct and the indirect costs are also qualified. So that's how hmm. encompassing both of the direct and indirect gets you the dollar for dollar refund. Mm -hmm. And then if we're talking about uh, the arborist testing out new methods to fall trees, mm -hmm. they have to, like I said, they have to meet some certain criteria, but sure. let's say they're developing new rigging that's never been done before, mm -hmm. developing some new tools or even yeah. new training methods, those things can be eligible. So, and what we end up doing is we do a deep dive into the business. We have multiple interviews with the owners or managers or whoever's running the company. We look at their financials and we give them a range of estimate. And then after we give them that range and they agree that range is okay and they like the number, then we'll dive even deeper into the company. We ask for mm -hmm. financials and we go back. The cool <laughs> thing is you heard about the Inflation Reduction Act, right? That just, right? They yeah. doubled the amount of R&D credits. So it used to be oh, wow. 50,000 per year. Now it's 500,000 per year. Ooh, wow. And when they did that, they also look back three years. So we can go 2020, mm -hmm. 2022, and it's 250, 250, and 500. So we can go look back and get a million dollars back for a business on qualified expenses. Is there a minimum business size? No. Anything like that? Just has no, to no, be R&D. No. It has wow. to be R&D. So for example, right now we're helping a software development company and they don't have any W-2 employee, but mm -hmm. they're developing software and I can't tell you what it's for because it's proprietary, sure, yeah. but it's the husband and the wife that run the company and they've spent millions of dollars on development, hiring third-party developers to build this thing that they're going to be launching to the market. Hmm. Most all of their expenses are qualified for R&D because they are literally creating something brand new to the marketplace that's never been done before. Mm -hmm. and it would seem like a lot of startups would like be able to win that credit. It, as long as your startup isn't like, you know, is somewhat novel, like a tech startup to some extent, yeah. right? Yeah, it's huge in the tech world. There sure. are a lot of tech companies that are taking advantage of it. There are a lot that aren't taking advantage enough, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. They're just writing off or not writing off, but they're claiming maybe only 20% of what they really could claim because they don't know all the ins and outs of the program. Mm. That's where our firm comes in is like, we know the ins and outs. And yeah. on top of that, our firm is extremely unique because we also sign on the dotted line with the client and mm -hmm. do full audit representation. So if the IRS mm -hmm. ever questions or sends a letter or anything, our firm does that. Like, mm -hmm. And that's no extra charge. That's just part of the deal. Mm -hmm. And so do you, when you get the credit, is that how you're paid or is the company's paying you up front? No, they, they pay, well, there's two ways. Yeah. Like, if they're getting a check, then we get paid when they get their check. Right. But a business can also use that money on their next quarterly installments. So rather than paying their quarterly income, income tax installment or their quarterly payroll expense, quarter mm -hmm. tax expense, mm -hmm. they can now use that credit in place of the payment. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's instant cash flow for the business. Yeah. If they decide they want to use it that way, then they have to pay us. Right. right. I get it. Yeah. But if they're yeah. waiting for a check, we don't get paid until they get money. So either right. way, we get paid when they get money. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's probably really helpful 
helpful for a lot of businesses. Comes to mind for a couple of things that I've had in mind, but yeah. that is awesome. Well, and so I tell business owners, like when I'm talking to them about it and they're like, I've never heard of this or mm-hmm. yeah, we've done a little bit of it. We now can help them plan four years into the future to recapture $500,000 a year. Yeah. Four years into the future, they'll be able to recapture $2 million yeah. on qualified expenses. So yeah. I tell them moving forward, I want you to think about how you're spending money in your business. Mm-hmm. Think about how you can customize anything you purchase yeah. to qualify for R&D. Yeah, planning purposes. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. So anyway, so we've got those two. We've got the construction. We've got the tax credit company. And we're also looking at you know buying other blue collar businesses. We're looking yeah. at things that have monthly recurring revenue. Sure. That's our number one. Things yeah. that, are, that have not low barrier to entry, but lower skilled labor. So for a yes. while, we were looking at solar companies, buying solar companies, which are still a great option. Solar is in this like strange dip right now where mm-hmm. a company that's got less than a million dollars in EBITDA, you can mm-hmm. pick up for three to three and a half times. If you're buying things that are 2 million, 3 million in EBITDA, the exit multiples jump. Oh yeah. Seven oh. to 12. Oh wow. Seven that's to nuts. 12. And that's, we we're talking about private equity. Institutional money is buying at 10 to 12 right now. Yeah, it's hard to compete. But you have to have at least $3 million in EBITDA to be mm-hmm. in the exit multiple. So a lot of mm-hmm. people, I have a good friend of mine who's doing this right now. He actually is closing. He's supposed to close on my birthday, but they had to delay a little bit. Mm. Closing a deal right now. And that company does almost $2 million. I think it is $2 million in EBITDA, buying it for a crazy multiple that I can't even tell you because it's so crazy. Mm-hmm. His whole entire goal is to now skyrocket this company and mm-hmm. then at that company for a 10x multiple. Yeah. So when you look at solar companies, there's a couple different approaches, right? There's some that are like basically the marketing, you know, they're just salesmen and door to door, you know, they've come to your door, they've come to my door. That's one arm. Then those guys are outsourcing to larger companies like Titan to do the installs. Or you have some of your smaller shops that are kind of all in one. You have your sales and installation. So where on that spectrum are you guys looking? And I've looked at some of the marketing framework ones. Seems a little, I don't know, not for me, I don't think some concerns again just like you're kind of taught you're only as good as your next sale as opposed to you know you mentioned reoccurring revenue but you know i do i'm with you on solar like tailwinds for sure so anyways where do you guys fall on that you're right solar industry is very fragmented there is the installation component and there's the sales component not mm-hmm. few companies do both right companies we're looking at are primarily installation companies mm-hmm. and they happen to have inside sales but a yeah, lot exactly. of installation companies don't focus on sales like sometimes Sometimes yeah. it's just the business owner or the manager who's kind of just going on sales calls and mm-hmm. really sales calls. They're more of like an evaluation of the homeowner's property or the commercial. Mm-hmm. So where we fall more is we were looking a lot at installation companies yeah. to be able to expand that. The issues that I've found recently, and I have a close friend of mine who currently owns a solar company and they've owned it for a number of years. It's a family run operation here where I live and they're doing great. They mm-hmm. thought about selling. I think they're reconsidering now now, but I'm not particularly looking at purchasing solar companies anymore. Yeah, It's very highly skilled labor. Yep. Electricians are required. Yeah. And in Southern California, there is a lot of competition in the market for being an installer and it's getting harder and harder to find the skilled labor and retain it. Yeah. So for those reasons, I am, I'm still looking at solar companies to be involved with. Mm-hmm. I'm very selective about what I'm looking at these days. Now I yeah. do have another friend of mine who just recently acquired, I, I don't know if it's acquired or bought into or partnered or whatever, but yeah. they're, they're on the marketing side and mm-hmm. they are expanding 
into, I believe they're in 40 states now. Oh, wow. That's pretty big. It's yeah, it's huge. And that company is with their knowledge and systems and processes, that company is going to be a billion dollar company faster than a lot of people think, which is rad. So I'm going to be getting involved with them on that side, because mm -hmm. since we have our general contracting company, mm -hmm. the way that they work is they'll be our solar division for our company. Mm -hmm. So we invest into their company mm -hmm. and they contact all of our previous clients. They do all of a marketing in the local area for us. They meet with yeah. clients on Zoom calls or phone calls, and they represent us so much so that they're wearing our company gear. Sure. Yeah. Our company logo, our company hats. We send them all of that, all of our stuff, right? All of our merch. And they go after our clients, they go after our local market, and they are now our solar partner for our new solar division in our company. So we're exploring that option a lot more than we are buying an installation company. Yeah. Leverage their framework, man. I mean, that makes sense. If they got the system in place. So I recently met with the seller of a solar install company here. He ended up, he got, you know, his books weren't quite right. And he got all excited because his last year's EBITDA looked like 800. And then he found out that his accountant hadn't like added back in some expenses and he was much, much less than that. So he's like, oh, I'm just going to wait. I will give me a call if you change your mind, but or if you get to a point where you want to do the sell but yeah so interesting because we I, i'm in the same boat i was looking a lot at those i wanted to ask you are you looking i mean i mentioned like geography at one point are you looking for business acquisitions outside your regional area and if yes in some of these how do you handle operations remotely are you looking for local operators and, and what's your path forward on that because we've done some of that and we actually have a meet with a plumbing company that looks very strong not huge but in that right size apparently has a good management structure in place and, you know, I'm kind of thinking through my head, like, all right, how do you run something like that from afar? So the answer is yes. We're looking at stuff that's outside of our market. Mm -hmm. The way that we run it is by finding a good operator who's in the market. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah. finding that operator is a challenging part. Mm -hmm. and we find a deal that has mm -hmm. legs. Like, for example, your plumbing company that's outside of your market. Mm -hmm. First thing is to lean on your network, to mm -hmm. post on socials, to ask, right? To ask people. Yeah. What's interesting about socials is you never know who's watching. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Just because they don't like or comment or whatever, just because they don't interact doesn't mean they're watching. Yeah, yeah. I true. can't tell you how many times I've had people message me after I do a post and they've never interacted with the post or previous posts. And they'll send me a message and say, hey, I've been watching what you're doing. How can mm -hmm. I get involved? Or yeah. are you looking in this area? Or I know this person who I can connect you with. And so finding an operator is really doing social posts, leaning on your network, mm -hmm. calling local chamber of commerce is oh, kind of a little not hidden secret, but it's like they really have their finger on the pulse. Yeah. I'm part of my local chamber of commerce. And years ago, I never would have thought that I would have joined one, but I did earlier this year. And locally, I have met so many cool people and it's a big referral source and when you do have an ask and you stand up mm -hmm. people respond or they remember it and they'll connect you with somebody so sure so that's what we're looking at doing yeah what comes across our plate we're looking in the local area for a good competent operator are you this is a debate i've had internally with myself and others as to said operator employee or partner employee with profit mm -hmm. share yeah. Okay. They get a bonus check, basically. Somewhat skin in the game, but not so much that they've got 10% so that they can kind of influence 
in a way. If you're taking the deal down and you know this operator, right? Because you're going to mm-hmm. want the operator in place before you close. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You can then offer it. You can offer them a buy-in. If mm-hmm. they raise capital to bring to the table, then mm-hmm. you give them an equity yeah. in a stake sure. in the company. And then on top of that, you can sweeten it with the profit share on top. So once we get to, say, they're doing 500000 in EBITDA right now. Once we get to 700000 you can get a bonus pop of 5% of net profits. Mm. You structure it however you want to structure yeah. it. But there's a lot of creative ways to get them right. bought in in a hard, yeah. in a good way. Yeah. You can also do an earn in. So mm-hmm. as they get to different EBITDA levels, they earn equity in the company. Mm-hmm. So you get this That's thing cool. to a million, you get another 5% of the company. Yeah. That's a good way Very to incentivize cool. and a good way to find out if somebody's real or they're full of it. Yeah. Because that's another filter you got to pass them through, right? It's like, there's a lot of talk, but when you get down to doing it, it can be tricky. This has been great, man. I appreciate the call. Yeah, me too. It's It's been awesome. So tell people out there, if they're listening, I hope people are listening. How is this they on can, live Facebook? It's not on live. No, it's, it's okay. Yeah, it's not. No, no. But tell people how they can get a hold of you and go from there. Yeah, you can find, I mean, I'm not a huge, maybe this is my, I'm not very good at putting myself out there broadly, but you can reach me at just my email or on Facebook, Tim Caldwell on Facebook or tim.caldwell19 at gmail.com. Need to do better about putting myself out there and what we're doing, but that's the best way. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, it's been great talking with you and I really appreciate the call. Likewise. Hey guys, just wanted to take a second here and thank you for listening to the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It means the world to me. It means so much to me that you guys are listening. I don't make any money off of this stuff. I do it for free. I do it out of the goodness of my heart. I want to help people and I want to share all this cool information with you guys and everybody else in the world. So if you could think of somebody that you would share this to so if they got some value out of it, I would really appreciate it. Share it on your socials. Click that little button for sharing and share it to your story. Thanks a lot. Yeah.